This is a special Uncommon Sense podcast for 3 FM with Amy Mullins. The interview you're about to hear is with Nicholas Douse. Nick is the founder of the urban beekeeping collective Honeyfingers, which is based here in Melbourne. I spoke with Nick ahead of World Bee Day, which is May 20th. We discussed urban beekeeping practices and the processes involved to make raw honey, as well as the behaviours of honeybees, the history of beekeeping and the similarities between modern beekeeping and modernist architecture. We also talk about the special relationship humans have had over the ages with bees. I'm really glad to be speaking with Nicholas Douse, who is the founder of Honeyfingers, an urban beekeeping collective based here in Melbourne. They have some amazing raw honey that I've been devouring and uh, it's just been so amazing to get to understand and learn about bees over the time that I've been doing this show. They've come up in so many different conversations and um, they seem to be a pretty vital part of our ecosystem. And as I did mention before, it's World Bee Day tomorrow. So that's why I've jumped on the chance to talk about bees because why wouldn't you? And uh, I'm really excited to chat with Nick. We're going to be talking all about the history of beekeeping, the practices of urban beekeepers such as uh, himself through Honeyfingers and also talking about some of the beautiful forms of honey and the honeycombs, the kind of architectural and artistic forms that bees create that are quite wondrous um, and not only have a practical purpose but they look pretty amazing too. So I'm very pleased to welcome Nick now to the show. Hi there Nick. Hi, how are you? I'm good, thanks. How are you doing? Yeah, pretty good, thank you. That's good. I'm so pleased to be able to talk about this subject and to pick your brain. Gosh, there's so many entry points to this subject, it's so hard to pick one, but I'm just going to have to dive in there. Maybe it would work to ask you about your connection with bees first up and how you began to understand what what they were about and why why you got into beekeeping and appreciating the world of bees. Okay, well, I thought you might ask me that. So I actually scrolled through my Instagram to find the first post that, you know, we, we made as Honeyfingers and it was in 2013. So that's seven years as um, Honeyfingers. And in 2011, my family um, just bought me an um, introduction to beekeeping course for Father's Day. And uh, I just basically became deeply fascinated. And I was studying architecture at the time at RMIT. And um, in my first design studio, I was looking at these sort of the forms of the animal architecture that the honeybee superorganism makes. And my um, tutor at the time, Diego Ramirez, said, yes, but what's going on inside the hive, Nick? What's really going on? Why are they designing like this? And, of course, I didn't really understand what he was driving at, but I went to the State Library next door and went into the archives and pulled out all these beautiful old gold letter embossed black leather-bound volumes and started to read and... Essentially, it just sort of organically developed from there. So initially, it was much more about an appreciation of the honeybee superorganism and how it creates structures. And then it sort of moved into other areas that we intersect with, like food. How can we create food 
from uh, working with bees? And then how does that relate to the urban food web? And then how does that relate to other, you know, people in the community who would like to eat honey and honeycomb, but also other animals in the community that are feeding on bees and, and also sharing the bees' food? And off we went. That's so, so fascinating that you've um, kind of leapt in there with that fascination. And I guess coming from that architectural background, it is a really surprising connection and entry point into bees. I never really thought about those really close connections between architecture, modernist architecture, which you write about in some of your articles, and also the actual beehive and the the modern beehive and how bees are managed. We'll get to that in just a sec. I wanted to jump on what you've just said there about this connection. And it's lovely that you checked back to see your first entry point to honeybees or bees in general, because I was actually looking into you and wondering whether you had been on Triple R before. And I saw that you were on the Architects program in 2010, talking about your love of modernist architecture. Yeah, that's right. I was a big fan of um, Stuart's show and Stuart, actually Stuart Harrison, the one of the presenters of that show actually was one of my teachers at RMIT. And, um, yeah, it's it's quite interesting the way it, it started with architecture and I'd go on and we'd talk about Robin Boyd properties mm. in particular. That was my big fascination at the time. And, yeah, segued into, into beekeeping. But, yeah, like you say, I've taken that story about the big design trends that have, um, humans have been involved in and how – they're also reflected in the practice of beekeeping. But a lot of people don't really think about beekeeping as having a a sort of a design component to it. No, definitely not. I don't think that's at all what would first come to mind. And I do want to get into the different types of hives and the setup that you've got. But before we get to that point, I did want to ask about the bees that you work with and the bees that we are probably broadly talking about. I know there are so many different kinds of bees and certainly in Australia there are native bees, there are honey bees and so there's a really broad range or diverse range of of bee types in Australia. What are the predominant bees that you see and work with in your your work and your passion? Well, it's it's actually a really good question. So there are you know, maybe 2,000 native Australian bees and the majority of them are not social insects. So they're solitary bees. There are some social bee species, stingless bees, and they live in the warmer climate. So they live from, say, Sydney and up. The bees that we're talking about are Apis mellifera or the European honeybee, Um, the Western honeybee, and they were brought out to Australia on a ship. They were also introduced to North America and Canada, and a lot like cattle, sheep, roses, rats, sparrows, pigeons, they've accompanied humans as humans have sort of like travelled around the world. So we're talking about the European honeybee. That's really interesting. I I wonder when you're talking about those solitary bees, what makes them distinct and what what is their function and role within an ecosystem if if their primary role is not to participate in part of a hive? Well, they're doing the same thing that um, all the pollinators do. So they're 
flying around um, pollinating plants. So they're taking some pollen and, or they're taking some nectar and getting um, some pollen on them and then flying onto the next plant and distributing that pollen. So essentially plants and, and bees and a number of other pollinating insects have a symbiotic relationship and essentially plants outsource their sexual life, their sexual reproductive processes to, to bees and other pollinators. The really big difference between solitary bees and um, social insects like bees or, or ants, which we also get in Australia, is only the, the social insects produce enough of a surplus of honey for people to rob. And so that's the really big difference between them. The, the, the solitary bees essentially keep enough for themselves just to do the function of, of, of pollinating plants but they don't create a surplus of honey. The social insects work together to create a, a surplus of honey, which gets them through lean periods or times when there isn't a lot of um, food around, like winter or really hot periods in summer. Exactly. And um, I'd love to bring in also the sex element because it's really interesting when I was speaking a couple of years ago with Jürgen Tautz, who's a German academic about bees, and we were talking about the fact that, of course, there's the queen bee that's um, a pretty vital part of this hive, the, this honeybee hive, but also females tend to be the most important type of bee, aren't they? They are, definitely with the European honeybees. So you have three castes. You have usually one queen bee. Occasionally you'll see two. Now, she's the only fertile female bee in the hive. And we tend to project onto it like we think it's some sort of like royalty situation and she's commanding the troops. She's not. She's essentially an egg-laying machine. <laughs> That's her job. She rarely leaves the hive. She leaves once when she um, goes out to mate. She'll mate with up to 50 drones in the air. Then she comes back to the hive and unless she swarms or something happens, she's not likely to leave the hive again. Then you have uh, a few hundred drones. So they're the boy bees in the hive. They're often overlooked by beekeepers because they uh, don't go out and forage, and but yet they eat. Um, so beekeepers, a lot of commercial beekeepers don't like having drones in their hive, but they guarantee the genetic diversity of the hive. So there's a lot of research now that suggests that the more diverse the number of drones a queen mates with, the healthier the hive will be because the drones carry the genes for all the different jobs that are done within a hive and essentially they can guarantee that you're going to get this fantastic workforce. Now the workforce, as you were kind of inferring, they are sterile female bees and they are the absolute brains of the unit. There can be 10,000 to 100,000 of them, depending upon the size and the season and location of the hive. And they essentially have a whole bunch of rules. They have really, really simple rules that they follow. And those rules lead to really complex and beautiful outcomes. And that is the sort of concept of emergent intelligence or groupthink. So they essentially make all these decisions collectively about where the best nectar is coming from, where the water is, when they should build honeycomb, when they should swarm, if they should keep this queen, if they shouldn't keep this queen. And essentially it's a whole bunch of little, little decisions that they all make collectively that lead them to those actions. 
It is really fascinating and especially some of the ways that they communicate with each other. And um, you highlighted to me a great author, Thomas D. Seeley, who has many books on honeybees and honeybee behaviour and um, that kind of hive ecosystem. And one of his books was Honeybee Democracy. And um, he goes through in detail about the kind of processes that these honeybees go through to swarm together and have that queen, as you say, to keep a queen, pick a queen, and then to find a place, a hive to go and settle in. And um, it reminded me of this time that I was uh, walking in the Melbourne University campus, as I would often do, and I looked up and there was this big fully circular globe light, a very large uh, round one, and there was just this mass of bees sitting all around the light, like just completely covered. And they were there for at least one to two days, just sitting there on top of this lamp. And I was thinking that presumably they were swarming together and they were trying to find a place to go and live permanently. Could you share with us what that is and how that process evolves? Well, that actually, Amy, is a very good observation because that is exactly what was happening. So, and and I love Melbourne Uni because yeah. I walk around there and I look up and I can see in the in the vents in the top of the brick buildings, the sort of, you know, 60s and 70s buildings, you'll often see bees flying in and out. They're, they live inside the buildings. And if you mm-hmm. look at some of the, the hollow branches of the really big eucalyptus and other trees there, you see wild colonies of bees living there. So, of course, you'll, you'll get swarms. So what happens in a swarm in spring, there's a few reasons they swarm, but I'll talk about this sort of one uh, type called a kind of overcrowding swarm, which typically happens in spring. Imagine that a, a, a bee family has a finite space. And in spring, when there's lots of um, food coming into the hive, the queen lays many, many eggs, and essentially they outgrow that space. And when the queen doesn't have any room to lay more eggs because all of that space is full of honey, the bees all communicate to each other and say, we think it's time to swarm. And swarming, when you think about it like this, is a little like the process of a cell dividing and growing. So it's the the reproductive process of the honeybee superorganism. So you think about the honeybee as being kind of a superorganism and it divides in two and the queen mother will lay these special, she'll lay eggs in special cells called swarm cells. And they look like kind of peanuts hanging off a frame because the queen's longer than um, a regular bee. So she needs a bigger cell to grow in. And once she's got a few of these cells in the hive, she knows that there will be a successor for her. And she flies away with about 60% of all the bees in that hive. And they go to find like a little landing station where they set up a temporary camp. And that's what you would have seen on that light, on that light um, where they were all sort of clustering in a big ball. Mm. And they will hang out there for a few days. And if you looked really, really closely at it, and this is what Thomas Seeley does, you would have seen after a little while, all of these bees dancing on the surface of the swarm. And the reason that they're dancing is the dance communicates coordinates of a new house for them to move to, which could be 
a hollow log, it could be a cavity in a wall, it could be a compost bin, it could actually be a swarm trap set up by a beekeeper. And so they will actually dance out the coordinates on the surface of this swarm. And if the bees like it, well, the bees will have a look at the dance, they'll fly to that site, they'll have a look around inside the box, they'll check it all out. If they like it, they come back and they repeat the same dance. And if they really, really like it, they repeat the same dance with a lot of vigor. It's really, really cute. You get these really excited honeybees doing this figure eight waggle dance. And it sort of gets to a point a little bit like a little bit like a, a viral video, like a meme that goes wild, like lots of people liking it. When the bees kind of get to this point where there's so many of these scout bees so excited about this location for them to fly to, they fly off. And that's when you see them swarming for the second time and they'll actually fly to that location move in and set up it's so cool to think about i did take a photo of it um because i just thought it was beautiful to see as a visual to see that perfect round globe of bees just sitting there um, they were very loud when you were walking past them and i was hoping that no one would touch them and one of my questions was you know you often see these bees swarming together and as you say it's not a temporary situation of an hour it can be you know maybe it's one to three days in a broad sense and some people might think oh gosh i need to get rid of these bees because they're in an inconvenient spot swarming together what are the options when bees swarm together and humans start to think they need to intervene? Well, the first thing to keep in mind is that um, beekeepers love swarm season because they love collecting swarms. So if you do see a swarm like that, get in touch with a beekeeper. Don't try to interfere with it or do anything like that. And essentially, we'll come out and collect them. They're usually really, really calm mm. when they're swarming because they have no babies to defend. They're usually full of honey, so they'll eat like two-thirds of the honey inside the hive before they go. And you can effectively, what happens is, if you call a beekeeper and the beekeeper can access the swarm safely, they'll come along with essentially a beehive box. They put it underneath the swarm and they'll brush the bees or scoop the bees or shake the bees into it. And as long as the queen goes into that box, nine out of ten times, within an hour, the rest of the bees adopt that box as their home. The beekeepers generally wait until dark when they know all the bees have come home and they're inside, and they take it away. It's just mind-blowing, really. <laughs> it's so exciting and, too. And then it becomes like a part of, um, you know, a beekeeper's apiary and so mm. they'll actually take those bees and instead of it being something that people uh, should be fearful of or you know worried about getting stung or calling the pest exterminator or whatever like if you call the beekeeper they'll actually take those bees and turn them into happy little pollinators and honey producing units within within their apiary and if they're good beekeepers they'll do their best to keep them in a good spot they'll do their best to make sure they're disease free and that they thrive so there's a really positive thing that you can do if you see swarms. And they in Melbourne, peak swarm season, for me at least, is early October, but it will run through from September until summer in December. The really positive thing you can do if you see them is just call a beekeeper. Mm. 
Yeah, exactly. And you wrote a piece for Assemble Papers about swarm traps and the type of trap that you could quite literally build yourself um, to house those bees using that process that you've described. So I really appreciate that you're making this information so accessible for people who want to understand and be fully informed about interacting with bees. I wanted to ask about this idea, you talk about being a good beekeeper. And I was wondering in this modern day context, looking at the kind of practices that you've adopted and that you teach to others in um, the field of modern urban beekeeping, what would you consider to be a good beekeeper and what types of practices does a good beekeeper enact? Okay, so that it's a it's a big question, and there's lots and lots of different ways to be a beekeeper, and I'd argue that some of them are a little bit, um, some of them are more friendly to bees than others. So, what we try to do is essentially have a bee friendly system of beekeeping that is quite low intervention, and one of the fundamental rules is that. We strive to be excellent beekeepers to provide the best possible situation for our bees to live in so that they can actually produce a surplus of honey and we only ever rob the surplus of honey. And we don't feed our bees sugar water, we don't feed them protein supplements or anything like that. So in other words, we're taking the extra honey that the bees don't need over winter, but we leave them with heaps of honey through winter and if there's one thing that you can do as a beekeeper in australia where we don't suffer suffer the same kinds of pressures on our bee populations because we don't have this thing called varroa mite if there's one thing you can do it's just leave your bees plenty of honey over winter so that would be the first thing the second thing that we do is um we're what we call uh foundationless beekeepers so instead of putting in a kind of a wax sheet that has an embossed honeycomb pattern on both sides of it, that is a, like a template that the bees build from and it's held in place with wires, we actually don't do that. We let the bees build all their own honeycomb from scratch. And we do that because we think that the I mentioned the three castes of the bees before. The honeybee superorganism is comprised of four components, the queen, the drones, the worker bees, and the architecture of the superorganism, which is the honeycomb. And if you let bees build their own honeycomb, they'll build it in the shape they want. Sometimes they'll build small cells. Sometimes they'll be, build big cells. And essentially, it will be suited to whatever their needs are at the time, as opposed to the kind of template-driven approach, which is what Foundation does. Um, we also do things like we never paint inside our hives. We try to use timber. We don't use any chemical treatments. We don't put treat chemical treatments inside the hive. We try to manage diseases by keeping hives really, really healthy. Um, and all of that may sound really, really basic, but it's quite different from a lot of conventional beekeeping techniques. And in some respects, it's kind of a luxury because we're not under the pressure that 
all of my beekeeping colleagues in uh, North America and Europe and Asia are, are suffering, where they have so-called colony collapse disorder and they have so many hives that just don't survive winter. I didn't lose one hive over winter and I know a lot of beekeepers who didn't. So we've got these really strong, healthy, vigorous hives and so I think we can afford to be much less have many fewer kind of interventions in the hive than every other continent on earth. Mm, exactly. And you do mention in that piece the fact that your colleagues across the world, really, every other continent except us is suffering from colony collapse disorder and also the mite that you referred to earlier, the Varroa destructor mite. And it does sound like that is pretty scary and difficult to contend with. And it was interesting to also note the unique situation in Australia that you also refer to around the fact that about 70% of Australia's bees are quote-unquote feral bees or wild bees that aren't, I guess, kept in a particular way. Can you share with us what makes Australia so unique and why we are special at this point in time? Yeah, sure. By the way, you're really well researched. Thank you. <laughs> My pleasure. Um, so we kind of have a little bit of a um, a little bit of a, a saying in the collective, which is that Australia is currently experiencing the last golden age of beekeeping on the planet, and that's because we literally have the healthiest population of honeybees from any continent. So if you add it all up over most continents, they have these pockets of real trouble with them, um, with pests and diseases. Now, people have varying opinions on, on why this is so, but from an Australian perspective where we still have, for example, a little bit of um, too much inbreeding with, with queen rearing where there's still broad acre agricultural pesticides and herbicides and fungicides where we still have industrial scale beekeeping where we have you know migratory beekeeping where we pick up a bunch of hives and all put them in the same spot so they can quite easily spread diseases through each other uh, we're still experiencing climate change we're experiencing all of these things that put pressure on bee populations except for varroa mite and in my opinion, varroa mite is the tipping point for the health of bee populations. And what happens in many places like America and Europe was when varroa first arrived, it, it essentially sucks the, the sort of fat out of larvae, but also out of adult bees and it acts, which makes them weak, but it acts as a vector for diseases. So much like mosquitoes spread malaria, these varroa mites can spread these diseases, which put a lot of pressure on bees and perhaps kill them at um, a younger age than, than they would normally live. And that creates all sorts of problems in the hive. But in Australia, we don't have it. And so our wild populations or non-managed populations are about 70% and the managed populations are about 30 in places like America. And these stats are a few years old, so they may have changed, but it's about the opposite. So they lost nearly 90% of their bees in the first wave of so-called colony collapse disorder and when Varroa came in and they've sort of built the numbers up, but still the majority of hives are managed, like so 70% of them in America and only 30% um, of them are wild. And part of the reason that Australia is so friendly to bees is um, 
we don't have varroa mite, but we also have these giant forests of flowering plants. So all of those eucalyptus forests are some of the world's tallest flowering plants. Um, Malaleucas, leptospermum, like they all produce so much honey. And when you compare that to, say, northern hemisphere species of plants, big trees, they're often wind pollinated. So, you know, mm. oaks are wind pollinated. All those conifers are wind pollinated. Whereas in Australia, we have this these beautiful sort of corumbia and eucalyptus flowers that are quite simple. They're like a little open cup full of nectar with the flowers popping out of it. And they are sort of designed for birds and marsupials, um, you know, bats and moths and bees and other insects and pollinators to come and drink from. So you've got this massive volume of nectar. And to top it all off, these big eucalyptus trees have the perfect hollows for European honeybees to live in. And I sort of say this cautiously because that is also a little bit of a problem. These aren't native bees. They're, you know, often displacing lorikeets or other um, animals, native animals that are looking for these hollows as well. But they kind of can live side by side. Ecology is an ever-evolving thing. But when you add it all up and you look at Australia, it's just this fantastic place for honeybees. Yeah, it sounds like it's the ideal place. I was reading that piece uh, of yours from a few weeks ago when you were talking about the different characteristics and qualities that these areas in Melbourne that you have your hives in actually have and take on, particularly with the honey. And you were talking about um, the ironbark trees and how unique they are in providing a very special and interesting type of honey. Could you share with us some of that information and your experiences gathering and robbing the honey from those different hives in places like North Melbourne, in Carl in North Fitzroy and beyond? Sure. So in the city, we have polyfloral honey. So it's honey that comes from many sources. And unlike a lot of rural beekeepers who are migratory beekeepers, so they'll put their hives onto the backs of trucks or trailers and they move from, I don't know, from where canola is flowering, then they'll move it, you know, to where almonds flowering, and then maybe they'll move it to grey box. They're constantly moving their hives around to try to make sure that the bees are getting onto a nectar source, and often that that's sort of one nectar source, and that's called a monofloral variety of honey. It's very different here. So we're migratory beekeepers. We leave our beehives in the same spot all year round, and you might think that, oh, well, the honey will always taste the same, but it doesn't. It's really, really interesting. So even within the same hive, within the same season, you can get a couple of radically different types of honey if you're robbing the bees as you go. So in other words, you're taking early spring honey out and then you let them fill the frames back up and they fill it full of summer honey. And right now in North Melbourne, in one of our sites, there's a hive that's working ironbark or these sort of red flowering gums and, and white flowering gums. And the honey, and it's not usual that you'll get a big row um, or a big stand of one type of plant or tree in Melbourne that the bees will just fly to because it's the closest thing. But occasionally you get it. Um, it hasn't been as dark this year, but last season a lot of those trees were in bloom and the honey that came out of it in the jar 
literally looked black. And it's happened to me a couple of times in North Melbourne. There's also some really big river red gums over there in the park and some sugar gums. And I think that they all produce this sort of um, darker honey. But it might only be around for a few weeks and it may only be prevalent in one season. Then you have to wait a couple of years for the trees to all bloom again before you get it again. But it's really fascinating because it connects you immediately with your context. So when you open the beehive and you stick your finger in and you taste a little bit of honey, you're becoming a part of this food web and this ecology in a really direct and immediate way because those bees, they're not like chickens just scratching around in your backyard. They can fly up to several kilometres around the hive and as they're flying around, butcher birds and red wattle birds will eat them. And they'll be pollinating backyard gardens, but also pollinating weeds and, and, and big trees. And within that hive itself, sometimes you'll lift the lid and you'll find a little gecko or cockroaches or all sorts of microbial stuff going on there. And it's just this fascinating connection to the, the wide world. And, you know, you might look at it and it looks like dark honey. And it just reminds you of all of these connections that exist even inside our city that we might not usually think of if we're not doing something like beekeeping. Yeah, it's so, so interesting that that single look can crop up from those trees that all flowered at the same time. And I think it's so lovely and great that we do have, as you said, these really tall flowering gum trees that provide such a great source for honeybees. What did the black honey out of curiosity taste like? Okay, so most of the honeys, and I've got a little jar in my hand here for the um, listener to imagine. Yeah. They're kind of, Melbourne urban honey tends to be sort of light and golden. It's not a really dark brown. The dark brown stuff usually comes from eucalypts out in the uh, out in the bush, and it's all blended together, whereas you, send to, you can kind of get this more single source thing happening in Melbourne. And it's very sweet if you compare it to honeys from around the world. And it's quite floral. It's very, very, it tastes like a million flowers. The North Melbourne honey tastes really quite strong. It's also sweet, but it has like more of a, a sort of a burning effect on, on the back of your throat, not in a bad way, in a good way. And it, it tastes less sort of floral, but it's, it's more of a... Um, like a darker kind of molasses feel and taste to it. Lots of bass notes, less top end, I suppose you could say. That's so, so wonderful because I, I think I went into a store in Gertrude Street, gosh, it was probably a year ago now, and I'd kind of just stumbled upon your North Fitzroy honey from a summer batch. I think it was 2019 perhaps and it was when I took it home and I ate it it just was something I'd never tasted before like it just was so oh, complex as you say it's just got so many different sources and and it also just had a different a totally different consistency to the normal honey that you might buy not necessarily the kind of big brands but even some of the smaller brands that you still can get from a supermarket the consistency is different and my understanding is a lot of that is also to do with the process of making honey that you particularly engage in and that you've shown on your Instagram and I mentioned it earlier hopefully people can 
can check out your extraction video because I found that so fascinating to watch how you yourself and presumably a number of other urban beekeepers actually extract the honey and then spin it in order to put it into a form that is ready to be jarred. Could you kind of give us a little bit of an overview of how your process of honey making can lead to this really special type of of honey that has that different consistency? Sure. So the really big difference between what small outfits like um, Honeyfingers and a lot of the larger uh, commercial um, brands is that we don't heat treat the honey. It's raw honey. So what happens is once you heat treat a honey, um, it basically stays runny forever. And Australians, just by force of habit and familiarity, have grown up with this idea that honey's always runny. Runny honey. (laughs) Um, But like any other food, honey changes its consistency and even its flavour with age, and you can age honey. So if you're getting in high summer a really runny honey that's because seasonally it's super fresh and that's what honey is like in melbourne at least in summer but then as the product ages i won't get too technical but essentially there's Mm. a couple of different sugars inside honey and the the sugar crystals and the water crystals start to separate depending upon the um, consistency of that particular honey and it gets thicker and crystallizes Now, the wonderful thing about most of the urban honeys that we produce in Melbourne is that it never really, really goes hard. It never goes rock hard like um, clover honey can go really rock hard. Mm. So you kind of get this creamy consistency to it and you get a texture in your mouth from eating the honey as it's starting to crystallize. So by midwinter, usually it will have turned and it'll be, it'll go lighter in color and become thicker and more crystallized. And so getting a bit of a mouthfeel with honey is really, really interesting. And as the crystals melt, you kind of get a slower release of all the different flavors and it kind of changes the flavor experience of eating the honey. And it's fantastic. And a lot of people are still a little bit afraid of, of crystallized honey, but I really sort of encourage everybody to, to, to run with it and to keep a couple of different honeys inside their pantry. So if you want a runny honey for cooking, keep one. But if you want something nice and firm that you can put on cheese, for example, that isn't going to go everywhere and offers you a bit of extra mouthfeel, keep a couple of varieties of honey and, and appreciate them as they mature. Now, the great thing about the way we do our honey extraction, much like how we sort of um, do our beekeeping, is that it's actually a pretty lazy process. And when I say lazy, I mean it's really, really simple. So we don't get too complicated. We don't want to handle the product too much. And we literally take what is called a frame of honey. So inside the beehive, you have a wooden frame that the bees build the honeycomb inside. Now, once that honeycomb is full of honey and the bees have capped that honey. In other words, they put a little wax lid on all the cells. That's the cue to the beekeeper that the honey is ready to extract. So the water content in that honey is below about 18%. And we know that it's not going to ferment. If you rub honey and it hasn't got a little wax cap on it, Not always, but often it means that the bees haven't quite cured it. So bees are also cooks. They take these sort of like volatile sugars from the environment and they're curing them 
to get them to this point where they're, they're quite stable and they're not going to ferment. We pull out frames of honey. It's called capped honeycomb. We take that out, take it back to the kitchen, uncap it by scratching off that wax lid with an uncapping fork. And there's lots of ways you can do that. There's knives, there's even machines, but we do it really simply. Then we have an extractor, which is essentially a centrifuge. So imagine you've got this big stainless steel cylinder that's about, I don't know, say uh, a foot and a half wide. And inside that, there are these little cages, if you like, or little baskets, wire baskets. And we put the honeycomb inside those baskets, get a nice balanced load, and then we spin the, the honey frames around and around and around, and all the honey is forced out of the honeycomb and onto the walls of the centrifuge. And then they, it drips down through a coarse little filter and into a tank below, and we pour the honey out of the tank. And so in terms of what is in the jar at the end, it's my understanding that it's not just necessarily the nectar or the, the honey that we would think of traditionally, the kind of runny honey part, but there's also the other parts of the hive that end up coming in through the filter and um, somehow being a part of that? Yeah, that's true. So we don't have this finely filtered honey. We have what's called a coarse filter. So you get little bits of wax, little bits of pollen, little bits of propolis, so all the good stuff from inside the hive comes through and you'll see it if you hold it up. You'll see like little floating particles and none of it is, uh, unless you've got an allergy to pollen, it's all really, really good for you and it's all super beneficial because it hasn't been heat treated. None of the enzymes inside the honey have been damaged and you're starting to get things like the botanicals like the pollen and some people who suffer from hay fever really enjoy that. So mm. they'll tend to take it. Um, you know, by the spoonful in the run-up to spring to try to build up, I suppose, some kind of, of resistance or f get their body familiar with all the pollens from the local area before, uh, before spring. I actually did do that with your honey and I don't know, I can't say that that was the reason, but I basically had no hay fever for a huge part of spring. So I was actually intentionally doing that because of that very reason. I had horrible hay fever the time before which causes asthma as well. So I think it can have a, a massively positive effect when it does work for some people. So I was just amazed at the fact that it can have that health element to it and a really positive effect. Yeah, well, I, I don't suffer from hay fever, but my sister-in-law does and she's tried it as well and she says it helps her. I mean, th these are controversial topics mm. because a lot of conventional medical practitioners will tell you it's all baloney. But um, it kind of makes sense because what honey does when it's treated in such a low intervention way is it gives you essentially literally food that's being gathered from your immediate environment and distilled into a into a kind of medium that you can literally take home in a jar and there's very very few foods like that in the middle of the city and so i think that there's something about being connected to you know, looping back to that, that concept I was talking about of being connected to your local food web, which probably has surprising results for 
inside the human body, if that mm. makes sense. Instead of all of your food coming in from hundreds of kilometers away or thousands of kilometers away, I think there are things about eating locally that we don't quite understand. And I think there's things about eating locally, and I'm, I'm just speaking speculatively here, but there's something going on in, even at the sort of microbial level that really benefits humans, and we don't quite understand it all yet. Yeah, there's a lot more to learn. And particularly with bees, like the stuff that goes on in there, the, in the biome of the hive is amazing and there's so many connections to humans and our own guts. Mm. But that's a whole other story. Yeah, I hope people can check out a post I shared of yours on bee bread because you talk about yeast and the amazing role that bees have with yeasts and how they have that as you say the microbiome of their guts as well and the kind of role that that plays in the honey and the hive um, process but because we're running low on time I just wanted to finish out our chat to talk about World Bee Day which relates to this topic that you've mentioned before about bee culture and the relationships between humans and bees and I'm not thinking about the commercial transaction that humans have traditionally had and obviously we've industrialized our transaction substantially with bees in the last century but I did want to ask about the person the Slovenian beekeeper from the 1700s who their birthday is actually the day of World Bee Day and that's tomorrow May the 20th. Could you just share with us that person's significance to bee culture and the human relationship with bees? Yeah, so bee culture is that term we use when we're describing the special relationship that exists between humans and honeybees. And Anton Jansa is a hero of mine and he was uh, and he's very much a hero in Slovenia. Slovenia is a country that produces the highest amount of honey per capita than any other country in the world. And they have, I think they share the top spot for having the most amount of beekeepers. So they've got a lot of beekeepers who only own about 15 or so hives each. So instead of having one beekeeper that owns 10,000 hives, you've got thousands of beekeepers who own dozens of hives. So Anton Janser is amazing. He grew up in this family and he was a painter, a talented painter, and his siblings were also talented painters. And there was this idea that they were all going to go off to the academy and study painting, but he pursued beekeeping. However, the things that some of the things that he's most remembered for is the fact that he combined his painting with beekeeping. And he was very well respected as a beekeeper. He wrote a couple of very significant books. Once again, he designed beehives that were very, very progressive at that point in time. And he even became the first sort of teacher of beekeeping in the West and was invited by the Empress of Austria to teach at a beekeeping academy and he kept bees on her ground. So he did all of the education stuff. But the thing that perhaps he's most remembered for is his paintings on the fronts of these beehives and they're these incredibly hilarious little oil paintings that may have some religious significance but oftentimes they're depicting folk tales and the way that they organize their beehives is they may have a grid of say six beehives going up and ten beehives going across 
And the fronts of these beehives weren't particularly big. They were like maybe about 10 centimetres high, 30 centimetres wide. But each of them had a beautifully rendered little painting on it. And they were presented inside a little bee hut, often with a roof that was curved over your head. So you'd be walking, you know, you would see these like wonderful little bee huts with this little gallery of paintings on the front of them dotted throughout the suburbs and the fields of Slovenia. And a lot of that was driven by Anton Jansa. And it's this wonderful kind of intersection between beekeeping, design and art, as well as folk traditions. Yeah, they're amazing. You did send me um, one of these images and it's phenomenal, the artistic beauty and also the kind of, what are they, standing, the huntsman's funeral. I'm just, it's standing deer? Well, yeah, there's this joke. So there's all these little stories that they tell and that particular one you're talking about, mm. the huntsman's funeral, the, the huntsman has been killed and so the animals that he hunts are leading the procession through the forest so they're carrying the dead huntsman on the shoulders and there's bears and there's deers and it's really really cute and it's kind of hilarious too yeah Um, and and then behind that there's this really sophisticated stacking beekeeping system with these sort of big removable drawers that was really really innovative beekeeping back in the 18th century with a lot of observations about swarming a lot of observations about the queen bee and what she does so it was very much science um art you know um folk culture it was it was the whole lot and so that's why i think that world bee day it's so appropriate that it's on anton jansen's birthday yeah i've just shared the image to the uncommon sense instagram story uh if people wanted to quickly look at what we were referring to i'm gonna have to leave it there nick but i have like a million other questions that's okay though because your instagram is a source of a huge amount of information and i think it's so lovely that you're being really generous and um, sharing your passion and your knowledge with other people who are also really interested and love bees and i know there are people who quite literally do love bees and i certainly would count myself among them so thank you so much for sharing your love today of bees and also your amazing knowledge thank you so much for a inviting me onto the show and for your curiosity about bees and you should come beekeeping next spring i would love that yeah come out have a look open it up have a look inside it's a it's a wondrous feeling and um happy world bee day everybody yes exactly happy world bee day (laughs) thank you so much nick bye I've been chatting there with Nick Douse, who is the founder of Honey Fingers, an urban beekeeping collective in Melbourne. And as you can tell, he has a number of sites where his hives are currently housed. And he's put up some fantastic videos that are in his highlights, the story highlights section of his Instagram page. If you want to get some firsthand vision of what the hive looks like, what the uncapping process looks like, what the centrifuge looks like, it's just such a fascinating world to uncover. I'm Amy Mullins and you've been listening to the Uncommon Sense podcast. Uncommon Sense is a radio show broadcast on 3RRR FM in Melbourne every Tuesday between 9am and 12pm.